and want to uh, welcome you here. In 2011, an author by the name of Rachel Held Evans decided to conduct an experiment. She decided she was going to take one year of her life and she was going to read through the Bible. And when she came across a particular instruction that was given in the biblical text to women, she was going to try and carry it out as literally and as simply as she possibly could. So she prayed with her head covered and she spun her own wool because in Proverbs 31, 13, it says she, a woman spins the wool with her hands. And then she got up before dawn to uh, make breakfast for her husband because in Proverbs 31, 15, it says that's what the Proverbs 31 woman does. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 22, it says she makes her own bedspread. So she attempted, having never sewn before in her life, to make a bedspread for her and for her family. One of my favorite examples that she did was uh, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about a woman of noble character praising her husband at the city gates. And so she made a sign and she went to the entrance to her town in Dayton, Ohio, and she took the sign and she stood there and held it up for everyone to see so that she was literally praising her husband by the city gates. Her husband's name is Dan. Dan is awesome as people drove in to Dayton so that she could be as faithful as she could to what the Bible was instructing women to do. Now, because she's an author, she took all of these experiences and interviews and she wrote them down, she's a memoirist, uh, in a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood, which as you can imagine, because of a lot of the cultural differences from our day and time to biblical times, uh, it's a very humorous read as she tried to live all of these things out. But she's making up, she's trying to get us to ask a question and she's making a point. And the question that she's trying to get us to wrestle with is, what does it mean to be a woman who is a Christian? A woman who desires to follow Jesus in discipleship and in learning and in living out faith in day-to-day -day life. And it's an appropriate one for us to explore together on Mother's Day. And she's making a point as well. And her point is that when we take a concept like womanhood and we put the adjective biblical in front of it, it gets tricky to figure out what we actually mean. What are we talking about? Are we having a cultural conversation? Are we having a theological conversation? Uh, are we having, clearly in her case, she was having a satirical conversation and many people who observed and read her book didn't quite catch that element and thought that she was, you know, she was doing disservice to the biblical text. But what she was driving at is that the phrase biblical womanhood has come over the last couple of decades to have a very particular set of meanings. It's come to be a bit of a loaded term, actually. So, for example, we have uh, the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And this was a group that was formed by uh, conservative U.S. evangelicals in the late 80s, and they were concerned about the uh, creep of feminism into the church, and so they decided to try and, and gather additional clarity on that. Because for this group of people, they said the Bible is really, really clear 
on what a woman's place is. And so on their website, they remind people that families that do not structure their homes properly in disobedience to the teaching of Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, and Colossians 3, then will not have the proper foundation from which to withstand the temptations of the devil and the various onslaughts of the world. The Council of Biblical Manhood and, and Womanhood warns also that churches that don't clearly um, define and articulate a place where uh, women uh, should be in the church and instead let cultural relativism define that, say that the church will, quote, be weakened in its convictions and less effective in accomplishing its mission. So they're trying to, to give a, a particular vision of what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a woman and follow Jesus. And some people will agree with that and some people will disagree with that. And that's not what this sermon is about. What I want to talk about today is the fact that if you uh, choose either of those perspectives, whether you agree with that or whether you don't agree with that, what can sometimes sneak in to conversations in the church in particular and what it is that women should or shouldn't be doing in the church is a particular kind of attitude towards women. And sometimes the church has been guilty as a Christian movement of placing women in a secondary status, second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven and in the church. And we have to, whatever your biblical position or on the particulars of complementarianism or egalitarianism, that attitude can sneak in uh, regardless. In our own denominational tradition, the Mennonite Brethren, we have actually a, a history, and there's sort of a bit of a mixed history probably in most North American denominations. Uh, we have a, a history with a wonderful woman of God named Katie Funk Weeb. She was an author and a Bible teacher for decades. And Katie Funk, we named and, and began to dialogue with uh, brothers in Christ about a vast reservoir of untapped potential of women in the church. And she began to call on the church to stop responding to women who challenged traditional patterns of ministry with, this is her words, a gentle patting into submissiveness back to the kitchen and the sewing circle. Katie felt quite strongly that defining women's roles only in terms of the limitations instead of the opportunities given to them was wrong. And she and many other women in our community of Mennonite Brethren blazed a trail. And we at Jericho Ridge uh, in 2009 had our own conversation on women in ministry leadership. And you can read that uh, position paper if that's of interest to you on our website. You go to jerichoridge.com slash WIML, W-I-M-L, Women in Ministry Leadership. Uh, but what we want to talk frankly about here today is that what does the Bible talk to us about, about women? And what does the church and the subculture of a church or the church say to women and about women 
And what do we tell ourselves about what it means that God has created both men and women in God's image as gendered human beings? So if you've been following along with us in our teaching series, we've been going through uh, the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And we've been exploring topics together around gender, around sexuality. Uh, So two weeks ago, we spoke about what it means to be a man who follows Jesus. What does that look like in our day and time? And then uh, we looked into the song and then some other places in biblical literature and in wisdom literature, in that tradition in particular. And when we look at the Song of Songs with the same lens around what does the song teach us or what vision does it give us of the woman who is in Song of Songs. And one of the things that we see is that actually the young woman does more speaking than anyone else. Really, though the book bears the name of Solomon because it's in the wisdom literature tradition, really it's the young woman's book. She writes and her voice carries the vast majority of the book. And we see some very clear pictures that get painted for us. One of the things that we see and that we uh, observe is that in chapter one, we see that the woman is, uh, has to go out and care for the flocks of her family. And so she's really a person in social status who needs to keep working. Her family is not uh, well off enough for her. Uh, she has to care for her brother's flocks even. And so we see in the song the, the royal character or the young man, he comes from a very well-to-do family, likely royalty. And so there's this massive power differential between a male figure who's of royal lineage and this woman whose voice is represented in the Song of Songs. And yet, despite that massive power differential and socioeconomic differential, when they come into their relationship, the way in which they converse, the way in which they treat each other, there's such a level of respect and equality that they give each other, which is unheard of for the day and the time and the culture in which this is written. We see also that the young woman is really the main character in this poem, which is very, very unique because this is coming to us out of a culture that gives men's voices significant privilege in this. And there really is her story. And we learn a lot about her as we've looked over the course of the last number of weeks about who she is, what's her character like. And she possesses this very unique but powerful blend of confidence in who she is, but also a sense of modesty and respect for others. She's not a pushover by any means. Uh, She's assertive, but she's not brashly going around flaunting her sexuality. And so I bring these things up simply to suggest that when someone says, well, the Bible's teaching is clear on the role of women, we might want to explore that a little bit and push into it a little bit and and explore what they mean by that and where their reference points are. And maybe go a little bit outside of the usual places like 1 Timothy, Corinthians, and 1st century Jewish and Greco-Roman cultural realities. 
So in order to do this, uh, this morning, I've invited uh, a friend to come and share some time together with us and share some of her stories and insights. And I want you to meet and hear from a woman whom I respect and value as a person who has significant gifts in ministry. She happens to deploy them just up the road at Trinity Western University as a director of community life. And so Aaron uh, is a friend, a person of wisdom who loves Jesus deeply and has some keen insights to share from her own story. So Jericho, do you want to welcome uh, Aaron Thiessen here this morning? Hey. So, Aaron, you've heard a little bit. We've been walking through the Song of Songs. You and I met this week and gave you a little bit of backstory to where we've been at at Jericho and the things we've been looking at. But maybe help us get to know you a little bit. Let's get to know your backstory. Um, One of the things that comes up when we think about biblical womanhood and broach into that topic is a lot of times I'll hear people say, uh, talk about, oh, you're talking about Proverbs 31 woman then, like this one who's amazing wife and mother, this person who's a civic leader, she's a successful business person, like she has it all together and this creates this lofty set of expectations and weight. I mean, like I could never live up to that kind of expectation and experience. So let me ask you a little bit, Um, Give us some insight into your growing up experiences. What did you see modeled for you in your uh, family of origin, in your home, uh, as to what the relationship between men and women looked like? Like, just tell us a little bit about your experiences in history. Thank you. Um, Oh, yeah, one more. There we go. Thank you. Um, Good morning, everyone. Um, I felt really free to share about my family until my father showed up. So thank you, Rob Thiessen, for... Yeah, you might need to. Um, No, that's okay. And then also looking around, um, it's fun, but also intimidating to see coworkers from Trinity here as well. So here we go. Yeah, as as Brad and I had lunch, it was really interesting this last week to talk about biblical womanhood. Um, I think it's been um, an interesting journey, as he explained, that you've been in this series. I was actually commiserating with Jared over there as a pastor's kid how horrible it would be to have your father preach through Song of Songs. (laughs) Like, buddy, that's the worst. But um, I really appreciate the journey that you have been on. Um, I think I would have... Um, as we ta- you told me about the different topics that you discussed, singleness, um, issues with different um, gender issues and things that you're dealing with um, in culture right now and in your church. Um, it was hard for me actually to put all of those other things aside and think just about womanhood. And then when you separated the questions, okay, your experience in church and your experience at home, I was like, whoa, as a pastor's kid, those are like really intertwined. And so it's, it is a bit tricky for me to even think about, okay, what did I learn just in my home? Um, but it has also been a privilege to think through that because I think of um, the fact that I have learned really valuable lessons in my home that have shaped me into the person that I am today and things that I didn't discover till I was much older that I learned through watching my parents. Um, A while back, I was telling Brad that I did a week of training with a ministry called Journey Canada, and they um, deal with all sorts of things to do with sexual brokenness and relational brokenness. And so I did this week-long training at a camp in Alberta, and it was really powerful. But a lot of what we were learning was actually the role of motherhood and fatherhood 
at a very young age and how that shapes you and the differences and the need for both mother and father and how that shapes you. And so I think about my own mother and father at home um, and how that affected me. I think that I experienced so much freedom as a girl growing up in my home. I got a sense of confidence and self-assurance from my mother modeling that for me. Um, and a mother who was not afraid to use her gifts. I saw her struggle in the church for sure. Um, I won't be shy about that as she was in pastoral ministry, but she had, in our home in particular, she had a sense of, of confidence and leadership, and that was never questioned in my mind. Um, I've also reflected on how significant my relationship with my dad has been growing up. And sometimes that frustrated me, actually, to think, I have this amazing friendship with my mom. We're actually really similar. Sometimes people think I am her, but I'm not. Um, but I also think that some of the most significant things that have shaped me as an adult woman have been because of conversations and my relationship with my dad. And that is something that I learned through Journey was um, your mother inputs so much into your sense of self and who you are and your sense of security. And your father inputs so much into how you relate with the rest of the world. So growing up, that has been a significant thing. So everything from little things that I was taught um, in terms of, yeah, what it means to be a woman, I think of many times when I would come down the stairs experimenting with makeup and or different things and my dad would just look at me and like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, I think you would tell me I looked worse when I had makeup on. And then, but that, those things instilled in me a confidence that, okay, womanhood is not connected with like beautification processes. So that was really clear. Um, Education, if I think about that, I was always encouraged to pursue education. And my intellectual contribution to the dinner table conversation, to um, debates or discussions that were going on, were never in question about whether or not that was a valuable contribution. So how does that show up in my adult life? I've, I've now stepped at a young age into a director role at Trinity Western. I sit at a table with... Um, a director table with other men who are older, much older than me, could be my dad, and I feel like I can contribute. And I have women um, co-workers who are my age. I have one in particular who says to me, I don't know how you do that, how you can have, hold conversations and contribute intellectually to the discussion and not be so intimidated. My relationship with my own father, she, she expresses to me, makes it that, that she doesn't have that freedom to be able to be confident in her relationships with coworkers. And so from such a young age, I think one thing that I would love to um, empower the church is that it's what happens from like zero to five that really brings that confidence level that I, that I grew up with knowing that I was, my contributions was valuable. And to me, particularly as a woman, knowing that my input and what I had to say really mattered, that was a really big deal to me. So that's part of my home life. Yeah, I think we, what we've continued to go over time and time again in this series is the fact that 
that gender matters. Gender is God's idea. It's, it's his design that he built uh, from the foundation of creation. So gender is God's idea. What isn't God's idea are stereotypes around gender, and particularly how we live those things out. So gender is God's idea, stereotypes are not. And I love the picture, um, and because we had a, a privilege, uh, Meg and I, to work with Rob and with Janet for seven years at, at North Langley, just seeing the way in which they contribute and respect each other as well, and each one of them having something unique and valuable to contribute. Uh, really, I also want to honor you, Rob, and say that helped to shape my leadership and see the way in which men and women can uniquely work together uh, in, in community. And so gender is God's idea, stereotypes are not. Um, one of the things to, to look at here is when we go back into the creation story, which we've done a lot of when we've been in Song of Songs, we've been in Genesis 1. If we look at Genesis 2 for a minute, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, if you turn there in your Bibles or on your devices, Genesis 2, 18 uh, is a foundational text in this regard, and then in verse 20, it uses the same word. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Hebrew word for that helper is ezer. And historically, when uh, people have gone to this text, helper has been a term of secondary value. It's been historically defined in terms of uh, marriage roles, motherhood, domesticity, that, there's, that they play a helping role in that. But the fascinating thing about this word is that when you, when you trace it out through the scriptures, 16 times God chooses to use this word of God's self. And God says this word is uh, related to God being our defender, our strong tower, our deliverer, a warrior. Like there's a real sense of strength in this word, not a sense of secondary assistance on some project that someone else is taking the lead on. And so when God said, I'm going, it's not good for man to be alone, I'm going to create a helper, that's like I'm going to create a warrior for them to go into battle together for my kingdom and for the purposes of God in my world to accomplish together. It's an incredible term of strength. And so when we, when we disallow for that or when we see something in our growing up experiences that don't portray that same sense of strength and wisdom and beauty that can be accomplished together, there's something that's, that's lost. So, you know, Aaron, I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about your journey and growing up. Talk to us a little bit now about some of your church experiences, because you can see one thing in your home, and then when you take that into a community of faith that has its own set of norms, traditions, values, history, what did you see and observe for you personally when you looked at your church experiences? Yeah, I think reflecting on this has made me think... Um just of the weight of importance of a spiritual community. So I was, I was thinking about it and how I was formed as a woman growing up. And so I spent most of my time in home or at school. Yet, I think the church had this profound impact on me. And you could argue that I was only there on Sunday mornings or, you know, for youth group or different things. So it, I, time quantity wasn't 
maxed out at church comparatively. But I think that this discussion that we've been having has made me realize, wow, we, we do need to hold this carefully, this topic of gender in the church, because the spiritual community speaks to us and affects us in a really big way. So um, I think in my experience at church, that's where a lot of more of my confusion came from. So I experienced um, often the experience of growing up in the church where genders are separated and where in youth group you need boys go over here, girls go over here. That frustrated me so much as a kid. And I really tried to figure out, like, why did I hate that so much? I actually had quite a bit of overcoming to do in that area when I started working in ministry with women in the dorms um, at my school where I went in the States and then back at Trinity because I was so averse to getting split up as men and women because I think, and I've, I've had to parse this out with a few people, but it's because we did ridiculous things when we split up. We, and it was like so fluffy and immature when we split up and that frustrated me so much. But the boys got to do the fun stuff? Well, yes, I was <laughs> jealous a lot of the time. So I need to make sure that not my experience is everyone's, but, but it also, I mean, when you, when you think about church ministry, often the boys then got to go with the pastor. So that, that was like frustrating. And then the girls would go in another room and we would write, I, Love letters to our future husband. I did that. Why? Were the boys writing love letters to their... No, they weren't. No, so they I'm weren't. like, weird stuff like that. So much so that I grew up with um, my poor mother because she led women's ministry a lot at our church. I was like, I hated women's ministry. She had to like, as an adult, I went on my first women's retreat like a year ago because I was just like, don't get me in a room with all women. I have like frustration around that because it just it seemed fluffy it seemed immature it seemed and that and that was a frustrating thing to me so I I know that and that's cutting it short there are I have had amazing experiences working with college students where we get all girls in a room and then we can have an intimacy and a depth um, that is there that I will not deny but I think that in church ministry growing up the constant separation and the need um, to try to pull away and then that's when the conversation started going towards um, your value comes from marriage someday or like that's when those conversations started happening and that was really hard for me and I didn't I didn't think that that was the point and so pursuing spirituality and a meaningful spirituality I felt like often came together um, and so yeah, I think that was part of my church experience. I, I called my mom last night to ask her, like, what would you say? Because I'm relating with a younger generation on this. And she, she said that she experienced a similar thing, but more focused on motherhood. So spirituality being associated with the ultimate calling of motherhood then creates um, this need to try to excel in that area of life and not pursue a spiritual walk with the Lord that has depth that lasts both before you get married mm -hmm. and after you have kids, if you have kids. And so I would like to say, as somebody who's 30 and not yet married, um, or maybe won't be married, it unfortunately, because of the world that we grow up in in our Christian culture, it has taken a lot of work to be okay. And that, that kind of sucks that it is um, 
it has taken, and I can confidently say, like my last four years of ministry at Trinity Western, or beyond that, when I was especially working in resident um, life, I lived in an apartment attached to 300 students in the dorm. It's totally crazy, but it's what made me realize, oh, this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, it's better to be single, or he encouraged that. I was like, oh, all of a sudden, I have time for these people, and, and I, I flourished in that, and yet comments that people in the church made to me People were so disappointed about how busy I was in my job because I wasn't then available to meet someone. And I was like, oh, that broke my heart because I'm like, so essentially then, if I figure that one out, if I was married and I was just as busy, it wouldn't be a bad thing. It would be a good thing because you would celebrate my ministry because I've already found someone. But my ministry is keeping me from finding someone. Yikes, that's a problem. So I think... Um, some of that has been things that I have picked up on from being in the church and what I would love to encourage us as we move further and further towards understanding this better is that um, a spirituality for womanhood is not connected to marriage and motherhood because it needs to sustain for those of us who are not married. It needs to sustain beyond your kids growing up and different mm -hmm. things like that. So. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a really good word. You know, when we look into the, into the biblical text and we see, for example, in Acts chapter 2, we see this sense of the way in which the faith community elevated women's gifts uh, and that gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit without regards to gender. Quoting from the book of Joel. So again, a radical concept from an Old Testament era, re-quoted and reimagined for Pentecost and the church era. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons will prophesy. Your daughters will also prophesy. Your young men are gonna see visions. Old men will dream, dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. Gifts are distributed without regard to gender. And, and so sometimes when we step back from the Christian subculture for a minute and we think about the world in which we live, like the world in which we live is not unclear on some of these realities and they think it's kind of weird that the church is sort of playing maybe catch up in some ways to that. And part of that is just some of the history that we have to own as a Christian community here in North America. Um, some of it comes from places like, for example, in uh, the Greek scriptures and the translation work that was done in some Bibles when the word, uh, Greek word diakonos, which is deacon, is used, someone who has a leading role in a ministry. In some translations, when the person's name that follows that is male, it's translated as minister or deacon. But when the person's name that follows that is female, it's translated as servant. So the translators, working through their own worldview issues, made a choice there to actually use a completely different English word to describe male leadership or female leadership. But it's the same word, diakonos. And then what gets a little bit lost or flattened out then when you look through the scriptures is some of the incredible 
strong and gifted women who served in, in particular in the early church. Uh, people like uh, Junia, who Paul in Romans chapter 16 says she was an apostle with us and served with that sense of gifting, that same sense of apostolic uh, appointment that she was an entrepreneur for the way in which the kingdom was advancing. Or the preaching ministry that Priscilla had uh, with Aquila. And Paul elevates that in, again, Romans chapter 16 and many other places, says Priscilla was a significant part of imparting wisdom and truth uh, to people in her community. And so, uh, again, here at Jericho, our conviction and our belief is that gifts are distributed without regards to gender. So we affirm those who are called by God, who have been gifted by God, uh, who've been called to serve, and then who are affirmed by the community of faith as well. And so that's where that, that process of community discernment, when it comes to things like eldership and uh, the congregational meeting in two weeks, we'll have some new elders that we're looking to appoint. And so it's the same process of exercising discernment as a community to say, are these people, uh, do they possess the gifts and the wisdom necessary to lead uh, in the family of God in this way? So we've talked a little bit about your church uh, experience, and then when we think about uh, gifts, Aaron, I see you as a person who um, carries yourself with significant gifts in the area of leadership, significant gifts uh, in the area of um, planning and strategy and understanding culture, discernment, all of these types of things. But what messages did you hear uh, from Christian community around you, maybe either inside or outside of the church, with regards to your leadership as a woman who is a Christian? Um, that's interesting. I was sharing with um, Brad about even my educational journey and the choices that I made um, growing up. I often, I always kept teaching um, as a part of my options because I never wanted to close the door. So I, I studied theology and I even chose the school that I did in the States so that I could do both at the same time. I could study theology and education so I always had a backup plan in case it wouldn't work to go into ministry. I actually remember the moment sitting there on decision day and the, the leader of the pastoral um, teaching department got up and was inviting women to join pastoral ministry and I really wanted to, but I was like, I can't do it. I got to keep education in my back pocket just in case. And I think that was a reality of watching my mom struggle through wanting to step more fully into pastoral ministry and not be so pigeonholed in women's ministry and what a struggle that was. Um, and I love education too, so I'm not going to deny that. I, I, I was a teacher for a while and I absolutely love it. Um, so, but I think that I a fear of stepping fully into ministry has often kept me with keeping my options open um, that way. I think I've experienced lots of different things. Um, going to school in the States, I experienced a different Christian subculture as well. And I would say one of the most heartbreaking ones, thankfully I had the self-confidence to deal with it, but when you would sit around the lunchroom or table with young men who are in seminary as well and they're trying to describe to you why you shouldn't teach um, was an interesting thing as you just kept asking question after question and realized that underneath it is actually an immature understanding of scripture, an attempt to be faithful 
to yeah. teaching. And I would, I would grant that. A very, a strong attempt to be faithful to scripture, but actually um, an influence of thinking that somehow women are not intellectually at the same level. And that was so devastating to, and I remember calling home to my dad and being like, this is crazy. I'm like, what's going on? And I, it was a lot to work through, but um, I, I have the blessing of having um, a father and a grandfather as well, I might add. Being very complementarian and very defined in gender roles in his own marriage has been extremely encouraging of me as a woman leader, which is a paradox, but it's been a, a massive influence on my life. And so I think that I have been gifted in certain areas to be encouraged to push through moments where um, you sit at a table and you're not heard or... Um, there's just different areas of small dismissal that happen. Um, but I think that I'm grateful to the Lord for making the path before me, and I choose to walk forward in it. Definitely speaking, even. I was talking to Meg about that, being up here. It's something that I, when I watch a woman speaker, which is rare, who's like, really talented or really preaching God's word, like Beth Moore, someone like that. I remember my mom took me to a conference once. I unwillingly was drugged to a women's conference with Beth Moore. And, but I just watched her and like, there was like this fire inside of me that was like, I want to do that. And, but yet I'm so nervous to say yes when people ask me to speak because I've had so little practice in front of people. And so, um, yeah, it's something that I'm choosing to just continually say yes to. Um, and I want to be an example to other women in this area. I think that something, one of my professors, actually he wrote one of the books on your reading list, Space at the Table. Yeah. Um, he, uh, Brad Harper was one of my profs at Multnomah, and he used to say to us all the time in class that it is always gonna be harder if you do leadership with men and women at the same table. That we cannot deny that there are differences in the ways that we lead. And so it is always gonna be more work. It is always worth it. And that was really helpful for me to understand because sometimes it is a lot more work and it's frustratingly more work. Um, and there's ways in which, and, and I don't think it's really helpful. I actually appreciate um, another writer on your list, Carolyn Custis James, who wrote Half the Church. She talks about um, wanting, to let go of trying to define what those differences are. There are differences. We know that there are. We have to celebrate the fact that women bring something to the table. We're not gonna define what that is being brought to the table, but that there is a difference and we look more, we take steps towards heaven when we do that together mm -hmm. and the work that it is. And so I really care about the church um, being a place that takes further and further steps towards an eschatological look at what it means to work together as men and women. Oh, that'll preach, that's good. <laughs> I think we, we just want to be clear and remind you that um, this sense of what ought to characterize relationships between men and women, particularly in the family of God more than anywhere else, is this sense of mutuality and respect for each other. And sadly, that isn't always um, the case. I love the way that uh, the writer of Ephesians puts it. In Ephesians chapter five, if you can turn there, chapter five, verse one. The invitation that's put there and says, imitate God, therefore, in everything that you do, 
because you are God's dear children. And so live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. Let there be no sexual immorality or impurity among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Things like obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Those might characterize talk that happens out in the world, but those are not to characterize those who want to imitate and follow after Jesus. And also, verse 6, do not be fooled by those who try to just excuse these sins and say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just how guys talk about things. That's not mutuality and respect. I think one of the things that in our day and time is a gift and a privilege for us to think about is things like the Me Too movement and, in fact, the Church Too movement. And if you search the hashtag Church Too, it's a, a litany of heartbreaking stories of people who have experienced either mild dismissiveness or outright abuse sexually and in other ways in the church. And one of the things that it's highlighted for us to, as a Christian community that we have to wrestle with is some of the unspoken underbelly. And there have been leaders, even through the course of this last week and this month, in significant ministry roles in Christian leadership who are being called out on the way in which they have spoken about women or in ways in which they've crossed the line and treated women in public or private settings. I think when we look in Ephesians chapter 5, we just say, brothers and sisters, of all of the places in the world, this should not be happening in Christian community. And yet it is. And don't be fooled by those who try to excuse it and say things like, well, you know, that's just the way it was back then. Um, you mentioned Beth Moore, and she wrote a blog post uh, this month entitled, A Letter to My Brothers. And if you haven't read it, it's a powerful read. Search it on her blog. And she highlights time after time where she has been dismissed as not being a serious student of God's word because she's a woman. She says this, I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say to them, and you know how Beth talks, brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray and pour over the scriptures while you were still in pull-ups. <laughs> she says, I felt so many times like the elephant in the room with a skirt on. She goes on to recount times when she was just out and out dismissed by leaders around her, not because of her theological position, but because of her gender. And she says this, many churches quick to teach submission are often, often slow to point out women were among the first followers of Christ in Luke chapter eight. The first, record, first recorded word out of Christ's resurrected mouth was woman in John 20, 15. And that same woman was the very first evangelist, went and told others. Many churches wholly devoted to the teaching of household colds are also slow to point out the numerous women with which the Apostle Paul served and for whom he possessed obvious esteem. So here's the point that we want to make in our morning together. The Bible does not portray an overly simplified, flattened, role-driven, one-dimensional view of womanhood. 
and following Jesus. It doesn't put it in a neat, tidy package and say, these five things, keep these within these boundaries and you'll be a quote-unquote biblical woman. But it does call us to something. The Bible clearly calls us to a high value and respect for each other. The Bible calls us to esteem the complex and challenging dimension of working together as men and women for the kingdom of God. And it's resplendent. When we get it right, it's awesome. When we get it wrong, which we often have as a church community and even here at Jericho, it's really damaging and it hurts a lot. And there's scars and wounds that we have to walk away from. But it's so, it's so much more interesting than anything you could kind of condense and put onto a little Mother's Day card and make it trite in that way. Like the Bible has this vision that when men and women work together for the flourishing of humanity and the good of God's kingdom, it's an incredible, incredible privilege and incredible things come out of it. An incredible fruit comes out of it. And so uh, I want to invite Ruth Ellen and Jared and the team, and they're going to come up and lead us in some time of response and reflection in worship. And you'll notice just that we have uh, two response stations set up at each side, and they're identical. And you'll see in each response station that there is a bucket full of rocks, and the bucket full of rocks has dirt on it, and then there's a bucket of water, and then there's a towel and some Sharpies. And so I want to give a response to you that you might want to consider this morning. And I'm going to give a response and challenge to the men, and then Aaron will do that for the women. Men, I want you to think carefully about how you think and act and talk about the women around you. And I want to be clear. At Jericho Ridge... There is no place for chauvinism. There is no place for misogynistic or locker room type talk, even in just casual jesting. We value and we esteem the women that God has placed in our midst, single, married, divorced, whatever their place around you is. You need to esteem them and speak respectfully of your sisters in Christ. And so maybe for you today, Maybe you have an example or you can think of a time when, oh, you know what, I didn't exercise that with wisdom. I carried myself in that conversation or that meeting with a little bit of flippancy that may have created offense or may have unintentionally or intentionally given a message that I just need to spend some time asking God to forgive me and maybe asking uh, the individual to forgive you of. So if that's you, you may want to just go to that station. You may want to take one of those rocks, just take the dirty rock, put it in the water, wash it off, and just say, as a way of saying to the Lord, God, I want to just be rid of that attitude. I don't want my language, I don't want my thinking to in any way be characterized by that. And this rock will just serve as a reminder for you. And then maybe you just want to write something on there and just say, I commit to speaking with honor, or with, let a word or a little phrase define how you want to describe speaking to your sisters and women around you in your life. The other thing that you may want to do, men, is you may want to take a, one of those rocks 
And you may want to use that as a way of honoring a woman in your life. Sometimes we talk about, we've talked a lot about stereotypes. One of the things that can be true about men is we sometimes have difficulty expressing what it is that we're trying to do verbally or written in written form. And so I want you to work at that and just think, is there a woman in your life that you love and that you respect? And write down something specific that you respect about them. And then you may wanna just give that stone to them because you might have forgot to get them a Mother's Day card. <laughs> I'm just saying. So one of those two responses, either saying, God, I just need to receive your forgiveness today for the way in which I thought or talked uh, in some point in history, or I just wanna make this a, like a moment of honor where I take that rock, you're still gonna need to wash it off, dry it off, and then just write that on it and say, I'm gonna make a commitment to give that to them. So that's two challenges for the men this morning. And for the woman, um, I just want to share with you this morning when we were praying for the service, um, we were praying through a passage of love um, and, and praying that our, this community would be a place of love. And the Lord just showed me this picture. As we, we hold up this attempt to love one another as men and women, um, and we really want our love to reflect God's love. But that's so difficult that this morning that he is in the business and wants to draw the impurities out of it, like those the metal impurities that get drawn out of a refining process for gold or, or silver. But that this morning, I would love for you, as you think about um, doing this practical act of washing a stone, that think about... Um, your relationships and and your participation in Christian community are there impurities that the Lord really wants to draw out of um, your mind and your heart and things that you've been holding on to that you've been carrying um, that that can be a really helpful thing and as you think about writing on the stone something that the Lord is telling you or speaking to you I would really challenge you I think a tendency for women is to be defining ourselves in relationship to men or our children or our role and instead of the depth of relationship that the Lord himself wants to have with you. And that's what is going to grow you into a mature, like how steady that rock is, a mature, steady walk with the Lord. And so um, as you think about what to write on that rock, think about you in relationship with the Lord and that being the foundation of your life, not your relationships with all the roles that you play. Mm -hmm. That's good. So just as we move into this time, uh, let me pray for you, and then the team will lead us in songs of response. God, we thank you uh, for your wonderful creative purposes and plans that before uh, the dawn of creation, you decided that we should work together as men and as women to fully live into the call on each of our lives. And so we pray for forgiveness where we have not done that. And Father, we, we desire to set our sights and our, our eyes higher than uh, just a, a vision that our culture presents us of some kind of equality or parity. We want to see a vision of your kingdom coming, your will being done, on earth as it is in heaven, where we work and live together in that reflection of your perfect love and unity. So God, would you gift that to us in this place today? Give us ears to hear what it is that you're saying. 
and give us hearts that are obedient to respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So you can make your way at any side to the response station.